I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We get the signal to, to set sail, to leave the port. And as we're going around the bend and for the first time stare into the, you know, the openness of the sea, there's people on the sides waving. The land starts to fade. The experience just becomes inward. It becomes just very clear that this is now just about us. My whole world has now become this seven meter by two meter boat, and it will be for the next you know, few weeks. On December 14th, 2017, two Egyptian adventurers, Omar Samra and Omar Noor, set out on a journey that was taken by fewer people than those who've been to space. I didn't know much about his character, but he said something to me. He said, look, Omar, um, I have an idea and I want to come discuss it with you. That's Omar Noor. I said, all right, come on by. He came within two hours. He said to me, look, we're going to do this. Uh, I want to do this thing. I want to row across the Atlantic. So we decided to do it. We decided that we were going to row unsupported for 3,000 nautical miles across the Atlantic Ocean. Together, they formed Team O2 and trained for the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, an international rowing race from the Canary Islands in southern Spain all the way to Antigua in the Caribbean. If you think about it, it's probably not the most logical thing to have uh, people that have never been in the ocean. They don't know anything about navigation. They don't know anything about boating. They don't know anything. There's so many things wrong in that picture. At that point, Omar Samra, who's the first Egyptian to climb Mount Everest, had also hiked the seven summits and skied to the two poles. On the other hand, Omar Noor is the first professional Egyptian triathlete to compete in the Olympic circuit. So he was used to the grueling conditions. But neither of them had had any experience in rowing or in, well, the ocean. We spent hours every day working on our boats, getting everything right, you know, putting everything together, uh, making sure that we knew how everything worked, how if anything broke down, we knew how to fix it. And, um, the, you know, the sense of excitement and nerves, you know, prior to leaving was, was intense and just kept kind of 
you know, escalating until it reached that crescendo just before we left. They trained for a year and a half before setting sail on a journey that would have taken no less than a month. The series will unravel new layers of this adventure, a chilling near-death experience that they documented in detail in the film Beyond the Raging Sea, which you just heard snippets from. Over the next six episodes, we'll speak to Omar and Omar about their days out in the ocean and what they went through emotionally and physically. And then we're going to get a bit geeky. With the help of scientists, we'll map out what this journey really did to them. How did it alter their relationship with nature and how did they handle the stress of it all? What changes took place inside their brain and body and how did they personally transform after living in a seven-meter boat with only each other and the very real possibility of not making it? I'm Lubna Munib and you're listening to State of Mind a deeper dive into the chilling true story of survival documented in the film Beyond the Raging Sea. State of Mind is produced by Kerning Cultures Network, and this episode is supported by Metavisionaries. Episode 1. Nothing but the Atlantic. Did you know that up until the 18th century, the seaside was nothing like we know today? No beach culture, no plunging into the waves, and no tanning on the sand. The shore was only used for fishing and the point where journeys started and ended. It was a constant reminder that Mother Nature has an angry face, and more often than not, this is the face she dons. In fact, this all started with the Industrial Revolution, when doctors began to prescribe beach time for factory workers who were quickly burnt out or depleted. Somehow, mankind had discovered the soothing effect of nature. What about you? Do you remember that one time when you went on a hike, how your heart skipped a beat as you reached the top? Or the first time you stood before a huge waterfall or a gigantic mountain? Or even watched the sunrise on the beach? Scientifically speaking, this awe that you felt is a result of hormones like endorphins and serotonin, which can cause happiness and relieve stress and pain. And they are one reason why we feel the urge to seek nature and escape our modern and indoorsy lives. But this surge of hormones can arguably become addictive, and we'll get into that in a minute. But let's start at the beginning. Before talking to Omar and Omar, I may have over-romanticized their time in the ocean. And so, the first thing I wanted to know was why they went on this dangerous journey anyway. Here's Omar Noor. Look, I mean, when we embarked on this, there was... The reason why we did it, or one of the biggest reasons why we did it, is we wanted to experience something new. We wanted to push our boundaries. And with that is a sense of the unknown. And with a sense of the unknown, there is fear. It is interesting what you expect versus the reality. When you're, you know, sheltered in the marina and your family is right on top and you're waving and and, and you're like, oh, this is going to be beautiful. And you have these these visions of what it's going to be. And then when you hook right around that wall and then you open up into the deep blue, the vast, and then there is fear. There, there is fear, right? And I, and I talk about going from the old normal to the new normal. And your body and your mind and everything is fighting that. 
Along those lines, there was also moments of, of euphoria. You felt these moments, right? But I will say that they were fleeting, fleeting moments. They were not moments that dominate the experience. I would say the experience is mainly dominated by negative suffering, pain, uh, you know, not, not, not these moments of, of, of euphoria. There were few and far in between where you felt connected as you're surfing down the wave and you felt everything around you and it's amazing and everything is going in the right direction. But I think that's life, right? <laughs> it's like literally life. My relationship with nature and what I thought nature was, and I knew what it was through all these years embarking on these terrestrial experiences in polar regions, mountains, I had assumed that I would have the same type of relationship and connection with nature when I ventured into the open seas. And I craved that. I craved a different kind of experience. But I also wanted to do embark on something that I'd never done before and get the same feeling of being a beginner again and learning for the first time. The difference between Omar Samra's terrestrial adventures, as he calls them, and the ocean, is that the first often culminates in a peak, a visible end result. Also on land, you can spend the night in a tent, have a good sleep, and even a warm meal every now and then. But in the ocean... It was like being at war every single moment of the experience, with some respite, just very small respite. I mean, there wasn't even sleep. Like, you couldn't even say, I'm going to get some sleep, and tomorrow's a new day. That wasn't even something. It wasn't like, okay, let me have a proper meal, and maybe that will give me a bit of... That wasn't there as well. Omar Samra said that arriving at this humongous expanse of ocean was when things got intimidating for him. The, the first significant moment that I felt was when we left the harbor. So you're inside a harbor, so it's enclosed, and then there's a mouth to that harbor that is basically then the open sea. Nothing, no land from that point onwards to the Caribbean, so 3,000 nautical miles. So, but you're tucked away in this cove because obviously shielded from the waves and everything else. So when you're in the boat, when you're starting, you can't see the ocean. So then you take a little swerve and then you start to get out of the mouth of the port and then you see the open sea. That was a moment for me. Despite their numerous encounters with nature, both armors told me that the ocean was something else. It was nothing like they had imagined. But when I asked Omar Samra how his enchantment with nature started, he remembered the kind side. And it wasn't until the first time that I climbed a mountain in Switzerland at age 16 that I unlocked something inside me and I could feel that I couldn't maybe put it into words, but I could realize that that experience really made me happy. And it brought joy to me and it made me want to do that again. When I got older, I started to to think more retroactively and retrospectively and try to make some sense into, you know, what that is. And so over the years, I continue to develop my relationship with nature. It was a place where I go to find some sort of solace, some peace, clarity of mind. I think nature taught me more than I learned in school or from my work experience. And I just had this relationship with nature where I felt when I'm there, I'm connecting with sort of something that's bigger than myself, and it's almost downloading information and wisdom and insight. And in the mountains, that really spoke to me because the way I see the mountains as energy, I see the mountains are obviously these sort of dominating big things that, that don't move and they've been around for millions of years. And 
because they don't move and there's no give, you reflect whatever you're feeling and whatever you're thinking back at you. So I see them as more like mirrors to the soul. Whereas obviously the, the ocean and seas is a very different animal. Most people that have rode an ocean will tell you that the first 10 days are the hardest 10 days. You're trying to get adjusted to the elements. You are never, never comfortable. Rowing happened in two-hour shifts. So one of them would row for two hours, while the other got a tiny bit of sleep or tended to other basic needs. They had solar panels that powered their GPS and other vital devices, including a water desalinator that turned the seawater potable. And for food, they had packed dehydrated meals, but ended up living off protein shakes and weight gainers because of the seasickness. You're being robbed of sleep. You're being robbed of food. We didn't eat a single solid meal in the first <laughs> nine days. The sense of comfort is completely stripped away from you in a split second. You're not comfortable while you're on the oars. You're not comfortable while you're resting from the oars. You're feeling seasick. You're feeling tired. All of these elements, just take one or two of them. It would take a big adjustment to go from that old normal to the new normal. Every fiber of your body is telling you to stop, telling you to feed it, telling you to hydrate it, telling you to sleep more, telling you that I just don't want to be rocked anymore. Stop rocking me. And it's a process that really tests your grit, your ability to stick to it and push through. And that teaches you something about yourself. Going to the ocean specifically, I didn't realize what kind of animal it would be. I didn't realize that it wouldn't have the sense of serenity and the sense of peace and calm, the reflection. Those moments when you're in the mountains or when you're hiking or climbing, when everything becomes, you know, everything falls into place and you have these beautiful sunrises or sunsets, it affects you in a certain way and you feel like, you know, you feel the sense of freedom and then, you know, life is amazing and everything makes sense. I can say that there were glimpses of that in the ocean, but for the most part, it was brutal. It was a lot of suffering. And uh, I don't know if there was a lot of joy in, in the experience, I have to say. Would you be able to enjoy nature if you hardly slept, were constantly drenched in seawater and couldn't eat for days? I'm guessing not. But I couldn't help but wonder about the slithers of joy. Were there any... For example, how would the sunrise look in the middle of the open sea, something that is, in theory, so very romantic? In theory, actually, it was, it was beautiful because it's completely unobstructed. You just have the open sea. Other than that, you know, flimsy little boat, there's nothing separating you between the ocean and, and it almost seems that you can reach out and sort of touch the, the sun. Omar recalls a particular sunrise after a cold, rough night where they had to turn off their gadgets to save power. It was utter darkness. They couldn't see anything. And on top of that, the waves weren't very kind to them. It felt like a celestial sort of patting on the back, you know? You've endured so much, and now this is your gift. And I'll tell you that there was that day, the, the waves got really big but they were pushing us in the right direction. And the sun was shining. So what was in front of me was these majestic waves. 
breaking and it, it, it felt amazing because as as you're rowing you were you're flying down these waves and and the competitive side of me is looking at the uh, how fast we're going the knots per hour and it's like oh my god I'm going from four knots to 12 knots and it felt unbelievable it was a mix of of nature teammate <laughs> performance everybody together and and the outcome was you're moving forward and there was a sense of euphoria there and i think there were definitely a lot of chemicals in the system kicking that made me just be able to stay longer and longer on the oars and this was the closest i came to understanding the drive behind this adventure and to cracking the code at its very center the relationship between man and nature we embrace things going from bad to better but we don't understand or we don't want to make ourselves understand and believe that things will get when they get good they'll also go from good to really bad and that's just we have to be able to let go of the good just as much as we are able to let go of the um, of the bad and these adventures are like life compressed so i might experience the range of emotions that i felt on this journey in over 20 years of my life but i've experienced them in 8 9 days is that good is that bad is that putting undue stress on my body yes is it healthy is it not i think all these things are subjective but ultimately did i gain experience did i understand more about myself yeah i think it's not something that i advocate or prescribe for everyone you have to want it to do it but definitely it's not it's not something that i would um, that i would want to change go back and change I don't want to read about things in books. I don't want for people to tell me how they are. I want to experience them myself. I want to have my own frame of reference for everything. And so yes, I want to experience the absolute height of pain and suffering and all of this. I want to experience the heights of joy and pleasure. I want to be able to look back at my life and one day say I have experienced the heights of this and this and that. And I feel it's not the only way, but I feel that these types of adventures allow me that they they give me a little spectrum of experiences and i can see things that few people get to see in that specific way this brought me back to my earlier point is any of this addictive can we get hooked on these extreme emotions or hormones or the feeling of exclusivity we get in super dangerous places i took my questions to someone with far better answers Dr. Anna Limke, psychiatrist and chief of Stanford University's Addiction Medicine Clinic. You know, individuals go into nature to get that dopamine hit from the experience of extreme survival. And in many ways that's healthy in that it's recreating um the kinds of experiences that we've evolved over millions of years to endure, right? Because this motivational machinery was evolved for a world of scarcity and ever present danger it's not evolved for the uh dopamine overload world that we live in now but anything that releases dopamine has the potential to create addiction and one of the things that characterizes addiction is the need for ever more potent sources or forms of our drug of choice over time So just like an opioid addicted person needs more opioids and more potent opioids, people who have this kind of adrenaline addiction or, you know, um 
sort of adventurism addiction will naturally then need to have riskier and riskier types of engagements in nature in order to get any kind of reaction at all. If they don't escalate the, the potency of the experience, then they don't get the same reward because their brains have already recalibrated to the last dopamine hit that they got. I asked Dr. Lemke to give me a beginner's breakdown of what happens in the human brain in the presence of nature. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the first thing that happens is that people go into essentially withdrawal from all of the reinforcing drugs and behaviors that exist in the modern uh, world. And so there's this uh, kind of period of disorientation. Um, superimposed on that are the rewards of nature, which are the natural beauty and also that sense of awe that we get with the vastness. And that's its own uh, source of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. So, you know, the natural world is also a source of pleasure and reward and inspiration and awe. But then you add in that element of potential danger, and there's also a huge adrenaline surge. So when should addiction become a concern? It's generally difficult, I think, to get addicted to nature as long as you are not moderating that experience with technology or with technology that pushes the body to do more than it was evolved to do. But if you then introduce technology into the experience of nature such that you push the bounds of what humans can actually accomplish, then I think you're entering the realm where you can create something that's fundamentally adaptive and turn it into something that's addictive. The ways in which we now use, for example, helicopters to drop us into, you know, the middle of uh, a wilderness area that we haven't gotten to under our own locomotion. And we're carrying, you know, high-tech equipment and, you know, special gear that allows us. Th then I think you're, you're starting to get into the realm where what you're, what you're doing is you're not actually living in harmony with nature. You're actually... Uh, chasing some kind of adrenaline rush uh, because uh, you're the first one there or you're going to climb the highest mountain or, you know, you're going to traverse, um, you know, a, a body of water that nobody else has traversed in quite the same way. So so you're not there to commune with nature. You're, you're there to achieve some sort of epic monumental feat that sort of defies human limits. And then there's the social media which then drugifies that experience as well, because then you then you begin to imagine the reaction of imagined others. It's the leaderboarding, the rankings, all of which takes that experience and, and, and sort of monetizes it in a way that makes it potentially addictive. I relate to a lot of things that she's saying. I can definitely see examples of hyper-professional athletes and adventurers that get um, hooked on that. And those people potentially perceive risk and perceive pain and perceive these things a little bit differently, maybe because they've maybe they're wired this way, maybe they've trained their bodies in that way. But I think it's a slippery slope. I think it's a nuanced gray conversation because to what degree? And are they self-aware? Are they conscious of what they're doing? Are they taking time to reflect and consider their actions and their decisions and recalibrating or not? Because there are a lot of benefits, I think, to having some experiences in your long life, hopefully, where you have 
pushed the extreme and half pushed the mental barriers to understand, even just to understand what your body is capable of. Omar told me that these extreme adventures do give him this rush of feelings and that they come with a sense of elation, but they also come with complete exhaustion. When you reach the highest place or the farthest place, you're also by definition in the worst shape by the time you make it. Being that shell of a human, he said, doesn't give you that much space to bond with nature. But I think the most harmonious that I felt in nature is when I've, you know, I've gone on a sort of a mildly challenging hike in a beautiful place where I've walked far enough, enough days enough that I'm now far enough from civilization. The weather is good, the sun is shining, I feel good in my body, in my breath. I've been long enough, so I've achieved a great sense of clarity, the, the noise and the hustle and bustle, and that mind shatter has subsided completely, and now I can hear something deeper inside of me, like, you know, and, and everything that, is, that I'm hearing now is, that, is my truth. And these moments are the moments that I look for. This is the reason why I venture into nature. This is the reason why I know that for as long as I can, I'm physically able, I will still venture into nature and walk and do these things. There's a very big difference between that and embarking on something where you're taking on an elevated amount of risk. Those are two separate things. I took Dr. Limke's words to Omar Noor and asked him if any of it resonated. What did he learn from nature? And what did he miss the most about his life in the city? In light of nature, what have I discovered about myself? Well, I'll tell you one thing. This truly puts things in context, right? It, it, it recalibrates your way of thinking. And, and, and the biggest thing for me is like we tend to worry about things in this modern day and age, right, that really don't deserve our worry and don't deserve our attention, right? But when you are pampered, when you are coddled, right, you will find problems. As this, and this is what we do. We find problems. So you will find the thing that bothers you and it's etc. But in reality, when you get exposed to nature in the way we got exposed to nature, it very, very quickly recalibrates your the way you evaluate life, your values, right? And the things that matter and the things that don't matter. In day-to-day life, we have so much noise, noise, right? From, oh, I have a WhatsApp, I have a tweet, I have Instagram, I have this thing, I have an email, I have a phone call. Da, da, da. And you don't really have time to, to, to sit back and really think about your priorities, right? Like, is getting back on this Instagram post important? And I think the biggest change for me is that it has recalibrated my value system. The things that I view as important, I can promise you that when we became shells of humans, if you asked me, is social media important? I would, I mean, I would just like, I, I wouldn't even be able to answer you. I'd be like, get out of my face. I need to like, I need to, to survive. I need to, <laughs> I need to do this thing, right? So I think it really um, very clearly shows you that you miss your family. 
You missed your loved ones. You missed interactions. You know your colleagues and your friends. Those are the things that you miss. Technology, my phone. Shit. Can I tell you something? Like one of the stories is is we had this illusion, right, that we would miss this. And and it's actually funny that you you say that because that is exactly what your question is completely normal. That is exactly what I would ask myself before going, right? And you've seen how my reaction is almost visceral. Like, what are you talking about? Like, not at all. But beforehand, we were like, oh, we're going to get bored, right? We we should just bring hard drives with a lot of different shows and movies and things, you know, so like when we're resting, we can sit there and, and, and watch and watch these things. And And you're not in that state of mind at all. One of the discussions we had was like, you know, should we bring a fishing rod? You know, now it sounds like a ludicrous kind of idea. We were just basically, you know, trying to make sure that our butts wouldn't get too sore on the seats. Like it was, it was, it was a very, very different thing. The reality of it was very far removed from, you know, what we had imagined. Would I have signed up to this had I known all of this? And with the benefit of everything that I know now, I, I don't know if I can answer that question, but I would definitely had have, would have taken a more harder look at the experience. I think Omar and I would not have signed up in two hours when I approached him with this. I mean, we would have probably said, wait a minute, let's really kind of look at this. But that is really the beauty. And I wouldn't change it. Like, I want to continue to have that joyful, youthful, almost naive enthusiasm to life. So if I was asked today, like now that you know it was brutal and you almost lost your life out there and you had to be teleported in time, I would say I want to do it again, but erase my memory. But I wouldn't like to live a present now where I hadn't lived that experience because it taught me so much. Going to the ocean in the way we, that we went, right, on a seven-meter by one-and-a-half-meter boat and going in the middle of, of inclement weather, it's a whole other scale. Like, like, whoa, like this got really, really aggressive, the intensity of it. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind, be, having your body in the water is, again, a completely different experience than being on top of it. Being on top of of it and not in it, it's almost like being on top of nature, not in nature. And your point and your your raison d'être is to literally not get in the water, but you're still part of the elements. You know, like when I think back about the experience and some of the parts that are were more, the most intense is when my other senses weren't weren't um, given the opportunity to work, like at night and especially in the beginning because we had no moon so you cannot see anything and you can hear like waves crashing but you don't know where they're coming from and and that that sort of fear of not understanding if it's going to hit you up from the left side or the right side and rock rock the board hardcore the elements were quite vibrant it wasn't this like serene quiet you know, like people picture it like, oh my goodness, it must have been like a lake and the sun is setting. And, and I'm sure there's days like that and experiences like that. That wasn't ours. Nature decided that 
she wanted to show us a different side of her, right? And and I'm grateful for that. And it was intense. It was just a very intense experience where you try to stay out of the elements, but you cannot. You're, it, the elements come to you. The elements force you. They, you. You get slapped with a wave coming from, from nowhere. And all of a sudden, you're soaking wet and you realize like, you are pretty insignificant. The waves rocking the flimsy boat at night under a moonless sky, that wasn't the worst part. Coming up next on State of Mind. That point on the ladder, the moment that you asked me about that I just described, I had lost all hope. I reached the absolute point of saying... Just let go. State of Mind is produced by Kerning Cultures Network, and this episode is supported by Metavisionaries. Metavisionaries is making space economy and frontier technologies more accessible. This year, Metavisionaries partnered with Qatar University and Ice Cubes in a global business sustainability challenge during the FIFA World Cup. You can check out metavisionaries.io or follow Metavisionaries on social media. This episode was produced by me, Lubna Munib, and our editor is Hebel Sharif. Fact-checking by Iman Al-Sharif and Dina Sabri, and sound design by Munzer Al-Hashim. Subscribe to State of Mind if you haven't already. Episodes drop every week. And before you leave the app, please leave us a review. It makes our show more discoverable, and we read every single one. Promise. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.